I'm John Crane. And I'm Bernie Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session. With our crazy dad, Jason Crane. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 425 for November 1st, 2013. On today's show, saxophonist Angela Davis. Just a reminder that new episodes come out now on the 1st and the 15th of each month, and one episode each month will have bonus content at the end of it, in addition to the regular interview, and so that will happen on November 15th. And it's going to be a pretty cool kind of off-the-beaten-track piece of bonus content, so I'm excited to bring that to you. On the last show, in about this spot, there was an ad for a record company, and if you would like your ad to appear in about this spot, and also, again, at the end of the show, send me an email at jason at com. There are affordable sponsorship rates for one show and also a package deal for four shows. I want to send a special thank you to my friend Leo out in Santa Monica, who I think listens to most of these shows, and I hope will hear this one. I don't know a lot about Leo, but he has been over the years emailing me every once in a while, which is not easy for him to do because I know he has a lot of vision problems. I think he has some maybe some software that reads emails to him and someone who helps him do that. He is uh, 78. As I mentioned, he lives out on the West Coast. I really don't know very much about his life. But Leo, every time I have any kind of campaign asking for money for anything, in the mailbox arrives a check from Leo. And uh, this last campaign was no different. And recently he sent me a poem. As I mentioned, he's 78 years old. He's written one poem in his life just recently. His first one, there are probably going to be more to come, I would imagine. But he sent me this poem uh, just kind of out of the blue. It was very moving, and it is an example of one of the reasons I just love this show so much. There are you know, people all over the world who have listened to the jazz session and have contacted me for various reasons, sometimes just to say hi, sometimes to do something as amazing as send me the first poem they've ever written. And uh, it just it means a lot to me. So hi, Leo, sending this show out to you today, and uh, thank you for everything you've been doing over the years. Speaking of thank yous, over the course of the next bunch of shows, I'm thanking all the Kickstarter members by name, starting today with Sarah Serpa, Scott Healy, Oren Shrebny, Alan Lowe, Andrea Wolper, Michael Eldridge, Eldridge, excuse me, Mike Watson, Anthony Rubio, Mark Shalansky, Richard Wright, Austin Peters, Laura Dubin, J.C. Sanford, James Jacoby, Brett Porter, Jerry Tiberi, Jason Linnell, Miguel Rodriguez, Jonathan, who I think is my friend Jonathan Matz, Martin William Reeves, Richard Caymans, Kim Santo, Linda Meredith, Ben Syverson, the band The Blue Cranes, and Jonathan Luke. More of those coming next time. Remember that you can become a member for $5 a month. You get free MP3s and other exclusive content. If you join right now, your 5 bucks will get you 10 MP3s, I believe, including new ones uh, this time around with this show from Angela Davis and also from vocalist Andrea Wolper, whose name you just heard in the Kickstarter. Thank yous. Thank you to the following people who've become members since the last show. Jason Parker, Danny McCormick, Richard Kamens, Justin Smith, and Mikhail Sekachyov, whose name uh, in PayPal was written in Cyrillic, 
but was able through a couple of uh, Twitter acquaintances to get it translated. So, Mikhail, I hope I said your name correctly. You can join, by the way, by visiting thejazzsession.com slash join. The Jazz Session is in iTunes. Take a moment, if you would, and rate the show there. You can give it up to five stars. You can also put a review. And when you do that, it just helps kick the show up in the rankings, and that's super helpful. Also, recently, uh, Clifford Brown's birthday happened. In fact, that was, as I'm recording this yesterday, as you're listening to this show on November 1st, two days ago. And uh, not too long ago, about a week or so, I asked people on Facebook and Twitter to list their favorite Clifford Brown tracks. And if you go to thejazzsession.com right now, the post right below the one for this show has a list and video clips. Oh, well, actually, audio clips. Uh, none of them are actual video of Clifford Brown, but they're YouTube clips with audio uh, of all of those tracks that people listed. And folks had some great things to say about Clifford Brown and why they like the particular things they chose. So go to thejazzsession.com and check that out. Also, you can leave comments on this episode. Just go to the post for this show, and right below it, there's a comment section. Feel free to leave your comments there if you would like. And I think that's all the housekeeping I've got at the top of the show. Angela Davis is a saxophone player. She is very much in the in the mold of Lee Konitz. Uh, and to me, I hear a lot of Paul Desmond in there as well, but certainly a sound of her own. Uh, in fact, she was a student of Lee Konitz. I'm not even sure how I first became aware that Angela existed. I think it even might have been through Facebook, maybe through a mutual friend, and not this time I was on Facebook, but the last time, years ago. So I feel like I've known she was out there for quite some time now. And the last time I was in New York, I was uh, very, very pleased to get a chance to sit down with her up in Harlem, where she lives. And in fact, the tune that we're going to hear and the one that's available for you to get for free in the members only section is a tune called 41 St. Nick, which she wrote about the place where she lives in Harlem. Uh, it's a really cool area. It's a great neighborhood. And uh, it was really fun to go just see Angela kind of in the place where she is and in a place that she's written so much music about. So let's hear from her album, The Art of the Melody, the tune 41 St. Nick, and then my conversation with saxophonist Angela Davis. <laughs> Thank you. 
guest is saxophonist Angela Davis. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, the new record, which came out earlier this year, uh, is The Art of the Melody. And I want to start right off with the thing that most struck me about it, and which I guess you don't really hide at all, which is the the kind of lineage that you consider yourself a part of. Folks like mm-hmm. Art Pepper and Lee Konitz, who we were talking about earlier. Kind of the, I don't even know if people still use the term cool school, but that's what it was called 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, why does that appeal to you? Uh, I think, well, obviously because of their sound, I think that's something I've always, um, you know, really loved about Lee and Art and even Paul is just uh, they have a sound that's really clear. It's like it's like crystal, and I think that's something that I've always just wanted for myself and something that I've always heard. Um, but I haven't really, um, in a sense, practiced how to get that sound. I feel like... Um, I've always, it's just been kind of innate for me to have that sound. And even if I had a different horn, different mouthpiece, or even if I tried to, I think I just couldn't change it. I, you know, so I haven't really practiced to sound like them. Um, but I guess listening to a lot of what they play, um, it's kind of, it's obviously coming through my playing without me really knowing it. Um, but another thing that I've really liked about that style of playing is the melody, obviously, and how, especially with Lee, you can always hear where the melody is. You know, he always, you know, through soloing and everything, he's always referring to the melody. And I think that's what I really love about that kind of playing. When you first heard any of these players we've just been talking about, these folks from the, the cool school, mm-hmm. um, did you hear something and think, oh, this is the sound that I also make? Or had you had you already started playing at that time when you first got introduced to these people? Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a town called Toowoomba uh, where there's not a lot of jazz and um, my parents aren't musicians. Um, so it actually took me a while to come across this music. Um, so I think I was already playing in that style just because I grew up as a classical player and I think that's a lot to do with it as well. Um, you know, having that clear kind of precise sound is something you needed uh, to be a classical player. And then when I came across their music, it kind of all came together for me, and that's how I began to really love jazz. And how old were you when that happened? You know, to be honest, it probably wasn't until I was about 17 or 18 when I really um, began to find their music. Um, you know, uh, when I first went to university, I guess, and I had a teacher called Tony Hobbs who introduced me to all of these players. Was that when you first started thinking about pursuing jazz rather than classical saxophone? Uh, no, it was around about that time. I had a decision to make at the end of grade 12 when I was 17 um, to either study classical saxophone or jazz saxophone at the Queensland Conservatorium. And I thought to myself, I think, you know, I love classical music, but I can see more of a future in jazz. Um, you know, because I hadn't really been exposed to a lot at that time. Yeah, it's it's kind of a it's a hard thing, but I thought I could do both, and you know I thought that there was more more of a future in jazz, you know, and popular music rather than, especially as a sax a classical saxophonist, you know, there's not really a lot you can do other than play with an orchestra when they're playing that kind of repertoire, which is hardly ever. Sure. So that's kind of why I made the decision. And you always saw yourself as a performer. That was the thing you thought you would do. Yeah, definitely. I think ever since I was, you know, five years old, I always knew I wanted to be a saxophone player and I wanted to perform. But it wasn't until then where I really started to define what it was I wanted to do with it. Mm-hmm. 
In the place where you grew up, were there people who had careers as saxophonists? I mean, did you look around and see, oh, well, this is actually a life that you can lead? No, not at all. Actually, my teacher was a trombone player. Yeah, so, you know, I, there wasn't a lot there, but I actually, well, I, uh, you know, sorry. That's fine. Um, there's a man called Don Burrows, who's an Australian saxophonist, um, and he actually came and played with us in a youth big band when I was, you know, 13 or 14, and I was really inspired by him. So, yeah, I did. I was introduced to jazz, you know, earlier than, say, when I was 17, but it, it wasn't a big part of my life until, until later. Sure. I'm just always curious about people who, I mean, if you look around you, and you, like the idea, kids want to become like firemen or astronauts because they see images of firemen and astronauts, mm-hmm. right? That's something that that's just part of common culture, or at least in the United States. And uh, so I'm always curious because the idea of being a musician, other than being like a rock star or a pop singer or something, that's just not really common. Most people don't know people who play the saxophone for a living. And so I'm always just curious about how, especially at what sounds like a very young age, you thought, oh, this thing that this instrument that I kind of enjoy playing is something I'd like to do. Yeah, it's it's very strange. I think maybe... At a very early age, I saw my brother and sister play in the school band. But be- before I even actually tried the saxophone, I knew that that's what I wanted to play. So it's a bit, it's a bit strange, I guess. You've been very committed to this. Yes, this school. very committed. <laughs> I, have, I have no other choice now. Yeah. That's right. No other marketable skills <laughs> no, whatsoever. No, yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah. Fabulous. Okay. <laughs> Since we're we have kind of moved onto the the trail of talking about your biography. Um, mm-hmm. Will you talk about when it started to become clear for you that? first of all, a life in jazz is what you're going to pursue and that also that you were going to come to the States to do to do that? Yeah, I guess. Okay, so when I was in my final year at, in Brisbane at the Conservatorium, I found out about the Manhattan School program in Amsterdam, you know, that. With, mm-hmm. And so I, I got into that and went there and learned off the goats and kind of, you know, um, you know, really found... Uh, yeah, Dickhouse was a huge part of me moving here, I think, and studying here and um and I knew that was really the next step to come over here and and it's been amazing because 
now all the the musicians I was listening to back home in Australia, I actually know and meet, have met and can talk to. So it's it's pretty incredible, really. What about studying with Dick Oates was so convincing or so um, changing? Well, I think at that point I wasn't such a great improviser and he really opened my mind up um, to playing the saxophone really well in an improvisational sense you know, technique-wise and sound-wise. And he, I think, really opened up my sound a lot more because even then it was a little too classical, but he just taught me to put air through the instrument, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah, he's taught me so many invaluable lessons about being a musician and not just saxophone but just life as a musician and always, always practising, always striving, always listening, you know. Will you say a few words about Dick Oates for folks who might not be familiar with who he is? Uh, Dick Oates is a saxophone player who's the lead alto player in the Vanguard Orchestra. He's He's been playing in that seat for, I think, at least 20 years, and he did the Radio City gig as well. Um, and he was a teacher at the Manhattan School of Music for a really long time, but he recently uh, moved to Philadelphia to uh, be the teacher at um, Temple. But he's, yeah, he's a monster, and I, it's... I still hear so many people in the city playing like him who have learnt from him. You know, you talk about how someone sounds like Coltrane or Lee or anything, but there's a lot of people who sound like Dick Oates now. You know, it's really cool to hear that. That's great. Yeah, I was actually listening to the Monk competition yesterday. I don't know if you saw that. On yeah. There. Yeah, and uh, like Andrew Garten sounds like Dick a lot, you know, so it's it's cool to see that generation below people like Lee and Coltrane and like see the new generation of people sounding like, does that make sense? Like yeah. someone in the middle, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Kind yeah. of a transitional player to, yeah, to the young people now. Exactly. Yeah. But he's definitely got his own thing and he sounds like Dick Oates, you know? And I, that's, I think I've always kind of tried to strive for that sounding like myself, not like anyone else, you know? Yeah. It's so interesting because, I mean, he's definitely inside the jazz world. He's a very well-known name, but... Mm-hmm. I think you might be the first person I've spoken to who's really talked about how great his influence has been on this generation of, of yeah. saxophone players. I think maybe it's not talked about a lot because he is an ensemble player. Like he plays in the Vanguard Orchestra. He he does a lot of big band stuff. And I guess his although he's got a lot of um, albums out under his own name, I don't think that's been a huge part of his career. It has been, but maybe that's why... People don't talk about him as much because you don't go just to the clubs and see him play in a quartet, you know? Right. It's always in an ensemble, and he's amazing at that. He has such a great lead alto concept, and I think it's the best in the world. Yeah, I don't think you can get better than that. And that, I mean, at least in my understanding, is a fairly different thing from small ensemble playing, the, the skills that you bring to that kind of that yeah. kind of role, right? Yeah, it takes a ton of listening, you know, and and... Uh, he's got this just genius way of being on top of the ensemble but still being able to blend with every single instrument, not just the saxophones but the trumpets. You know, he's he's just a genius at that. He really is. Um, I haven't heard another lead alto player like that in my whole life, you know. And it sounds like you were saying that not only your sound but that he had an effect on your improvisation as well. Will you talk more about that? Yeah, sure. He has a concept where he... Um, no matter where you are on the horn, um, he he has his embouchure exactly the same. Like a lot of people kind of get a bit tighter when they go up on the instrument. Um, but he has this concept of 
having a really, really loose embouchure. And it's funny because when you hear him talk, he talks like that too. Like he's got no kind of pressure in his jaw, you know. And so he, he does a lot of, I think, interval practice. Well, that's what at least what he taught me when I was in Amsterdam was to just be able to play any interval on your horn no matter where it is and always have the same loose embouchure, you know, and it's all about air for him. He doesn't get any of his sound from his lips. And what's the what's the benefit of that? Why would you want to do that? Um, why would you want to? Uh, I think to have a uniform sound throughout your whole range, which is really hard, a really hard thing to do, but it's beautiful when it happens, you know, because, yeah, that's a hard one to explain. But it's – well, when you listen to him play, he, he can play anything on the horn and it's just – I guess he wants his highest note to match – the, t- the timbre of his lowest note, you know, and that's a really special thing and a great way to play. Yeah, and that's something I would say that I really associate with the those, like, Paul Desmond, Lee Konitz type players, as opposed to, like, Coltrane, whose sound was completely different in his upper register mm-hmm. from what it was in his middle register. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely associate, I guess, that kind of uniformity. I never really thought about it until this moment, but... Yeah, and I mean, it's it's just a different way of playing, and I, I think it it helps with ensemble playing, and it all stems from that, you know, to... Just have the same ta- same timbre throughout your whole range, and you can really blend. You know, I yeah, I think it's a great way, and not that the other way of playing isn't great as well. It's just different, and that's I guess why we all sound different.
speaking of improvisation and particularly uh, kind of coming back to the the album art of the melody but the actual concept of melody mm-hmm. is your is the way you play in the improvisation that you practice would you say it's more closely tied to the melodic structure of the pieces as opposed to just blowing over changes or like leaving the you know here's the head and now we're leaving that behind and we're just using those changes as the the basis yeah definitely i think that's something that lee taught me um and that i really i really love is just cuz when you think about it the tune you're playing you know the you recognize the tune or you know the tune because of the melody it's not really i mean the changes of course as well but we remember the melodies and and they're the things that I really associate with, you know, the heartbreaking melodies or the, just the beautiful melodies that make you happy. But for me, it's just always about the melody. And that's what I love about playing. And when I hear other musicians and I can hear the melody, I think that's what makes me love what they're doing. Yeah, most people don't walk down the street like humming arpeggios of the chord changes or whatever. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> you know, you want to hear the melody. You don't want to hear... I mean, I, I think... And I kind of shy away from... I I hope I do from playing licks, you know, I see the value in learning obviously the language, but I try not to um, practice something that I'm not going to play, you know, and that's a big Levano quote that I heard once is that he, you know, practices what he wants to play. He doesn't play like, like compared, like the Levano compared to Brecker. It's a completely different concept of playing. You know, Brecker was a technical player who's a genius. I absolutely love his playing, but he, you know, practice those things that he played. This, if this makes sense, you know. Whereas yeah. Lovano practiced improvising and being um, creative and always fresh. Whereas I think Brecker, you know, was just a genius in pra- practicing, you know, patterns and things like that. Well, not really patterns. I'm, I love Brecker. I'm not saying I don't love Brecker, but I think I associate more to the Lovano Lee kind of concept of being unique every time you play which is really, really tough. And I think sometimes it takes longer to become an accomplished improviser like that because you can't just hide behind licks or patterns. You know, yeah. you've really got to try to just be unique and creative and sometimes it doesn't work out, you know. Yeah. I remember I took a, a saxophone class with Michael Brecker once in Tokyo. Oh, really? And uh, it's interesting hearing what you're talking about because the the class was really, really focused on extremely detailed technical pattern playing. I mean, that's what... Mm-hmm that's what he was demonstrating for us and that's what we were really working on was um a, a kind of second nature facility with dozens and dozens and dozens of different kinds of patterns on the whole horn yeah um which in the hands of someone like michael brecker he could then turn into these brilliant brilliant solos oh, of course and he yeah sorry he was fresh and unique he got to that level but i think in the hands of a lesser player though yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's <laughs> might not be the same yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I remember the first time I listened closely to a Jerry Mulligan, Chet Baker record, um, probably in my 20s, and mm-hmm. thinking that these guys never, they never play any licks, and they might, there'll be, like I, I bought this box set of all their recordings together, and so often there were seven or eight versions of the same tune, and the solos bore no resemblance to one another on all the tunes, and that was the first time I can ever really remember thinking of a different way to approach improvising. Right. And that was really before I knew anything. I don't think I'd ever even listened to Lee Konitz at that point. I don't even know if mm-hmm. I knew who he was. And um, I'd certainly listened to Paul Desmond. But, yeah, there's something – I remember just thinking how surprising it was that this was kind of just purely melodic improvising. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just something that I 
just love hearing, you know, um, because I think at the end of the day you find out more about a person and you have these recordings that are just so unique and so creative and personal at the same time because you can really tell that the person, this is that this is them in their playing, you know, they're just being honest and I think that's what it comes from, being honest and not hiding behind anything, just playing what you hear rather than practicing these things that you can play over these changes and then, you know. Do you feel like result. that leaves you more exposed in some way? For sure, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think some that it, sometimes, you know, you need to be able to, um, call on those licks and you know if you're in a tricky spot and you want to sound really impressive on like a big band solo and you kind of want to pull out all of these tricks and I think that's you know, sometimes I do that still um, but yeah definitely just throwing that all away is is definitely risky you know um, and you're definitely more exposed but I think I'm going to get more out of it trying to play like that at the end of the day sure you know so uh, to go back and kind of bring ourselves up to the present, you went mm-hmm. to Amsterdam and what happened after after that? Uh, I think, uh, so I went back to Australia for a while and I knew that I wanted to move here so I had to get some day jobs teaching and save up. Uh, and then I auditioned, um, I really liked this school in Philadelphia called the University of the Arts, um, which was a great school and had a had good journalism part to it as well, which I really loved um, and a great uh theory teacher called Don Glandon who has this he's a genius um and taught me transcription and analysis and really brought my playing up you know um so I did that um I got my master's there and then I moved here and how did the transcription and analysis help how did it affect your playing um being able to sing he made us sing all the solos and really get deep into what someone is doing over a certain you know, chord progression and really being able to say, you know, like this is what Brad Meldau does over these changes compared to someone like Lee or Dexter. Um, so you can really see the history of, of players. So that was, I think I just became a lot more knowledgeable about jazz music th- uh, through studying with him. Sure. And then you decided to move to New York and what's that been like since you've been here? Um, well, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been amazing um, and tough at the same time. Um, but I've just, I've, I've got to play with some incredible musicians, um, like the American Jazz Repertory Orchestra with Clem DeRosa, mm-hmm. who's now sadly passed away. Um, and a lot of big bands I do this reading session sometimes at the Union with the Dean Pratt big band. Um, with, and I get to play with Bobby Baselli doing that. He plays lead and, oh, do you know Bobby? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's incredible. So I think it's just, been a dream of mine to be able to do this and actually hold my own with some of these players you know obviously playing next to someone like Bobby is so frightening and scary but he's just a genuinely beautiful person who is so nice to you so you start to realize these people are just normal regular people who are just really good at what they do and have worked extremely hard so it's inspiring to know that if you just keep working and keep playing with people that, you know, you could maybe get to their level one day. And are you're back at the University of the Arts in a faculty capacity, is that right? Yeah. Um, I do some, like, ensemble coaching there. So that's that's amazing too, you know, Yeah. to bring that knowledge back. And, yeah, I love Philly. I've always loved Philly. And do you find that teaching ensembles continues to develop your own playing? And 
For sure, because, you know, especially being a, a white female Australian jazz musician, you know, who's coming to America and teaching these kids who are already really good at what they do, you kind of have to ha hold your own and really make sure that you know what you're talking about because you kind of I'm kind of a minority, you know, and yeah, you've really got to keep on your toes, which is great. Let's come back to the record again. Will you talk about some of the repertoire and how you there's a, a combination of your own music and other people's music and a lot of it, or some of it at least, comes from outside the jazz world, which is great. Yeah, definitely. I think that I it took me a while to come up with the concept. I knew that I wanted to have a few of my own compositions um, and some of them, well, The Road to Montgomery I composed in Philly while being a student there. Um, but which the is other, kind of about longing for yeah, home, right? Yeah, yeah, like it's about missing home and... Because I, I live on a, a, a street called Montgomery, or a court, Montgomery Court. Um, but the other tunes, say the Boss Gags one, uh, my dad actually sent me an email one day with his ideas of, you know, good songs with melodies that are outside the jazz realm. And that was one of them that I just couldn't stop listening to. Uh, I just listened to it over and over again. And actually, there's a, a couple of other jazzish recordings of that one that are kind of hard to find. But I just, um, I really wanted to play that tune and I kind of arranged it in a way that brought it into the jazz world, I hope, I think. And there was a, a recording uh, with Lee Konitz and Dan Tepfer, you know, their duo album. There's one song on that that I really liked the feel of and I kind of brought that over into this tune. Um, yeah. And then I guess the Tom Waits Martha, that was just another one uh, that I have always loved that melody and can't stop playing it. Um, but it, I guess sometimes it's a little hard because with those songs, a lot of it is about their lyrics as well, something that brings you into their playing. So it's hard as a saxophone player to to kind of portray the same beauty or heartbreak or... Yeah. Yeah. If you take the words away from a Tom Waits tune, you're taking a lot away from a Tom Waits tune. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And so there's a lot of Tom Waits tunes that I just wouldn't be able to play because of that. But I felt that one had the melody that fit, uh, was really good on the horn and, 
you know, you could kind of play it without the lyrics. In writing your own music, since you're so focused on melody, do you write most of your tunes on the saxophone? Do you write at the piano? How does that work? Um, if I'm – the two contrafacts that are on the album, I wrote those on my horn. Um, but if I'm – like to say the road to Montgomery or anything that's chordal-based, I'll write on the piano. Okay. It depends where it's coming from, yeah. And just mention that contrafacts are uh, melodies on top of existing chord changes from other pieces, right? Exactly, yeah. which Lee has done a lot of, and he's got some genius ones out there that not many people know about, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people, especially people who move to New York, find a lot of inspiration in the city they live in. And at mm-hmm. least one of your tunes is named after the place where we're sitting right now. And do yep. you find a lot of inspiration around you in terms of coming up with melodic ideas or just feelings or moods to write about? Yeah, I think with 41 at Nick, um, that's more about a feeling, you know, because I, I absolutely love Harlem. I find Harlem to be a really real neighborhood with real people. Um, and it can get a little crazy sometimes on 125th um, because all sorts of different kinds of people get together and it just it gets a little crazy, but I absolutely love it. I think this is, you know, where I'd want to live even if I had a million dollars to buy an apartment, you know. Um, but 41 Cent Nick, yeah, the melody, I guess, comes from living here for a few years and really experiencing this neighborhood and, yeah, that's where it comes from. You've got some really outstanding players with you on the album. Talk about the band. Um, well, Christy Yemba is possibly my favorite piano player ever to play with. He is just a brilliantly creative musician, and I heard him um, play at the Juilliard School a few times, and I've heard him play a lot of solo uh, solo gigs at the Catano, and he's just so inspiring on how he creates a feeling, you know, and he's just an absolutely joy to play with. Um, and Linda O, obviously another Australian, a really good friend of mine. She, again, is, I think, the baddest bass player in, in, in the town. You know, she's just got this energy that emanates from her bass when she plays, and I just absolutely love it. It's this kind of solid groundwork that you just become so comfortable with. You know, you really don't have to worry about any kind of time or anything. It's just all there with Linda. And at the same time, she's also very creative with it and listens like nothing else. Um, and the drummer Rajiv Jaywera is also Australian. And for me, um, I guess I didn't even know if I wanted to record with drums because mm. I don't like a lot of uh, – I don't like – drums on a lot of things I mean I do now and I love playing trio with bass and drums but for this recording because I was focusing on melodies I wasn't sure if I wanted to play with drums but Raj is the kind of player who he is a, is, is an ensemble player and really adds more color rather than you know restrictive time or anything like that so that's why I booked him he's he's brilliant as well and creates such a great sound what do you need from the people who play with you in order to allow this space for melody to happen? Um, I think it's funny you said that I actually need space from them a lot of the time, you know, and I need, uh, I guess from from Linda, she just is the groundwork and the, the sound. Um, I don't know. what it's a, hard, it's a hard question because um, it, I definitely picked them because of that because they allowed me to create these melodies. But it's hard for me to say why. Uh, are you already looking ahead to what the next record might be? Um, yeah, I th- I've always wanted to do something with strings. You know, the same kind of concepts, not exactly the same, but I, I love 
you know, the saxophone and strings, um, I, you know, if you really just ask me what I'd want to do, I would just want to do a record of ballads with strings, but maybe I shouldn't do that because there's a lot of ballads on the first album too. Ah, who cares about that kind of stuff? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do what makes you happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, but my, it's my dream to play with the full symphony orchestra and just play ballads over top. <sighs> Have you ever played with a big string section? No, I haven't. Um, but there's, you know, the Cannibal Records and yeah. you know, I just I love that stuff so much. My guest is Angela Davis, saxophonist. The new album is called The Art of the Melody, and it's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That's music from Angela Davis and her album, The Art of the Melody. Don't forget, if you join at thejazzsession.com slash join for five bucks a month, you'll get ten free MP3s right now, plus more with every show. And there are two there, brand new right now, Angela Davis's 41 St. Nick, which we heard at the top of the program, and also one from vocalist Andrea Wolper, who's been a guest on the show, and you'll find her in the archives. Thank you to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. The entire theme song is also available in the members-only section. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the logo. If you need a Wikipedia page or a press release or a bio, I encourage you to visit my other site, cranewrites.com, where I am now providing all of those services for a reasonable fee. I've done them recently for a bunch of folks who've been on this show, including bassist Ben Allison. So uh, please feel free to visit cranerights.com. There are samples and rates all listed there, and I would be happy to do that work for you. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to everybody who became a member. Thanks to all of you who are about to become members. Thanks to all the Kickstarter supporters. Thanks to Angela for being such a great guest. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.